Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You are listening to Parliament Matters a Hansard Society production supported by the Joseph Rowntree Charitable Trust. Learn more at hansardsociety.org.uk slash pm. Hello and welcome to Parliament Matters, the podcast from the Hansard Society about the institution at the heart of our democracy, Parliament itself. I'm Ruth Fox. And I'm Mark Darcy. Every week we're going to be analysing what's going on behind the Gothic facade of Westminster. Helping you to stay on top of the key parliamentary issues of the week and what lies ahead. And we'll be explaining how the system works. And hearing about the latest research and innovations in Parliament and politics from influential thinkers and practitioners. Providing new perspectives from inside and outside of Westminster. And we'll be travelling back in time to some of the pivotal moments in parliamentary history. To help you understand exactly how we've arrived where we are today. Coming up... So the government survived the second reading vote on the Rwanda bill, but are they out of the woods yet and what's going to happen next? Certainly more trouble to come, one suspects, and we'll be talking to one of the sharpest observers of what goes on on the floor of the House of Commons about what's happening now, what the mood of MPs is, and how the whole issue is going to play in the longer term. there, Mark. I just want to say a few words to thank everyone for listening to the podcast and sending us some really kind messages, particularly our growing legion of international listeners, particularly those of you in Canada, you know who you are. If you're enjoying the podcast, remember to rate it wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others find out about us. And if you've got any questions, send them to us and we'll answer them over one of our urgent question episodes or one of our bonus episodes. Send them to hansarsociety.org.uk slash PMUQ. And as we're approaching the Christmas season, we've got some special bonus episodes for you so you don't miss out on your parliamentary fix over the festive season. So make sure you're subscribed. Make sure you're following us on social media at Hansar Society to get them in your podcast feed as soon as they are published. Well, in the end, was it high drama or a bit of a damp squib? This was the week when Rishi Sunak's fate was supposedly in the balance as MPs on his own side decided whether or not they were going to back his Rwanda bill. The thought was that if the Prime Minister lost the second reading vote in the Commons and the bill didn't go forward even from its first debate, there'd be trouble. As it turned out, he won and won quite handily. And with us in the studio now is Rob Hutton, parliamentary sketchwriter of The Critic magazine, who's been watching and documenting the proceedings as they unfolded. So, Rob, what's your verdict? High drama? Damp squib? More damp squib than high drama, I'm afraid. I mean, I think I was expecting it to be squibby because most of these do not, in fact, live up to billing. 
in the Brexit years, the thing was the majority was tiny. So you, you did only ever need a small number of MPs to rebel, to put whatever the government wanted to do in jeopardy. Now, even though we're having this sort of slow erosion of Tory MPs who are resigning and being, being recalled, through, being, recalled <laughs> being recalled sort of at the rate of about one a month these days. And, you know, if we go on long enough, there goes the government's majority. But there is still a comfortable majority. So you, sort, you, you need to be organised really organised to get a rebellion. And and actually, this is a nerd's point, but the guy who was doing the organising in all the Brexit years was Steve Baker. And he was a really effective whip, for want of a yeah, better absolutely. word. Absolutely. Yeah. They called him Rebel Commander, didn't they? Yeah, and you, he had a little black book and he knew, he, he knew what everyone wanted and he did all of the bits of it because some of whipping is a pastoral role. It's about looking after people and understanding you know mark that you don't actually you don't really want to do this one and well okay and i put my arm around you and say well come on come on through for us anyway and or maybe maybe you want to sit this one out and i'll you know because i know my numbers i know i can afford to lose you and i know i know my numbers and i know the other guy's numbers and Steve was really good at that. And, uh, and they've never quite replaced him since he no, became, he's, now he's now a government minister. minister. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so so there, there needed to be someone else in the Brexit era ranks who could kind of herd the cats in the same general direction. And there isn't someone who can do that, apparently. Yeah, I mean, it is. It, 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 there's all sorts of things that are sort of astonishing about politics when you explain them and you think this can't quite be true. But, but one of the things that is true is there are 650 members of parliament of whom... 640-something actually turn up, of whom 630-something vote. Correct me on my numbers if I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> this is I, minus the Sinn Féin MPs. Yeah, minus the Sinn Féin MPs, speakers, speakers and take deputies. Off, take off 11, I think. Yeah. That's actually a relatively easy number of people to keep track of. You know all their names and you know where all of them work. Um, <laughs> and yet, actually keeping track of them is something that both official whips and unofficial whips find surprisingly hard to do. I mean, going back to the Brexit years, there was this argument. There was the, the, we kept seeing this story, and I even did, it was briefed to me at one point that there were thirty Labour MPs who were ready to vote with the government to get a Brexit deal through. And I remember I, I started saying to government ministers and Tory MPs, "Well, who are they?" Name um, three. Yeah. Well, you know, then they couldn't. You could name three, name five, and then I, I got interested and I started totting them up. And I said, "Well, I think I can get you to 12. and I ran that story. And I ran basically saying there are, there are not 30, but I think there might be 12. And I got a phone call from someone in government saying, who? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I said, really? You know, not, not entirely encouraging. You know, really? You, and that was the moment at which I thought, this is not going through. You guys, you, <laughs> you guys can't do this. Because the work of an afternoon to phone them all and ask them, and you could phone every Labour MP and say, would you vote with us? And ask them, it's not, it's not that hard. But in the same way, the rebels just, just they're not organised. But isn't this partly, though, a reflection on your professions, if I may say, for both of you? Because you talk about high drama. I mean, the drama's built up not just by the politicians, but by the media. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, frankly, how many of your colleagues are frankly just a bit gullible and believe what some of these MPs tell them? Or consciously flamming it up. Or consciously flamming it up. Yes, I, I mean, I would never accuse any of my colleagues of <laughs> well, no, being gullible. gullible in <laughs> no, my goodness, the very idea. There, but there are very few incentives in journalism ever, especially on a Sunday afternoon shift when there isn't much happening, to go to the editor and say, I don't really think we've got much of a story. I think it's going to be fine. All of the incentives 
are to flaming up. And you've got lots of people who are in this who are good at drama and in the sense of, you know, they're good at giving brilliant briefing quotes about bottles of whiskey and revolvers and paracetamol and all sorts of this, you know, and, Families where, and, mafia and yeah. where people are going to be stabbed and, you know, and, and emergency breakfast. And, and so there's lots of material. And when somebody says to you, well, could Sunak lose? And you say, well, certainly Sunak could lose. You know, I mean, he could. There were, I don't think we've quite got to the bottom of how many of the 60 people who didn't vote were abstentions as opposed to other sorts of, as it were, deliberate abstentions yeah. as opposed to people who were absent. But let's say 40 of them were deliberate abstentions, which doesn't seem to be implausible because there are people who are angry about this. Had they all voted against, it's feasible. So I, I, think, it, I think it was natural that it would end up getting built up. I mean, I always, before I was a sketch writer, I, I worked for Bloomberg and actually a big part of my job was explaining to my readers that they didn't necessarily need to believe everything that they had <laughs> read in the British, you know, you, you don't, the government, probably the government is not going to fall this week. You should not buy or sell a pound on the basis that that is going to happen. And and increasingly, actually, in a sort of, in a clicky-baity world of news in which we live, there is very little percentage in having the, you know, the fourth most exciting story. Yeah. about something yeah. on the internet you you want to have the most exciting stories so we're yeah. talking about the overestimation if you like of the power of the um, conservative right the, the, the five families as they were rather dramatically being described at one point what about the other side of the equation because there were two strands to the story one was that the hardliners wanted the bill drastically toughened up and the other strand of it was that there were one nation tories out there who thought they'd gone just about as far as they could be dragged on the issue of abandoning the european convention on human rights and if they were dragged any further, these One Nation Tories might get antsy themselves and maybe not vote for the bill. If the hardliners were a paper tiger, were the One Nation side a paper tiger as well? Yes. Yeah, so f- first of all, it is an underestimated achievement of Rishi Sunak. He's managed to not just split the Conservative Party once, but twice, while uniting the opposition. I mean, this is a real wedge issue. Well done. I... I watched Bob Neill's speech. Bob Neill is, Bob is Neil, very the chair much, of the Justice Committee, yeah, former Justice Minister, very low, a, ser- a serious lawyer, a, a kindly, thoughtful man, and he was sort of make, explaining why he would vote for this, but he wouldn't vote for anything any further. And I'm afraid, forgive me, Bob. I thought I wouldn't want to be in a foxhole with anyone from the One Nation group. If you were in a foxhole with someone from the Tory right, but Mark Francois, he'd be shooting. I mean, he might, <laughs> he might be shooting in the wrong direction. But he, he would at least be shooting. I, I would, having watched the One Nation group fall in behind Boris Johnson in 2019, none of these guys is, they are always going to be saying, well, okay, you can have this thing, you can have this, but, but no one more thing, no one further. more thing, and that's it. They, mm. are, they are the least impressive threatening people. I mean, one yeah. day, one day maybe it will happen. There's a marvellous sketch by the late Robin Williams about the British police being unarmed. He's saying, what do they do? They say, stop, or I shall shout, stop again. You that's, it, get... that's it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but on the other hand, the one thing that the One Nation group have got that the Five Families, or whatever you want to call them, have not got, is that if they all voted against something, they can stop it because they will be voting with the opposition. So are there 30 of them? Are there 30 of them who are willing to rebel? I'm sceptical. Yeah. But if they did, they will be voting with Labour and with the SNP and with the Liberal Democrats and apparently possibly with the DUP. And at that point, they can kill anything. So although I don't personally ever believe that I will see it, if I did see it, it would work. Whereas 
the problem that the five families have got as they go into committee stage, you're going to well, stop I, I know, I was just going to say, to explain for our listeners what the five families are. Oh, using this terminology, I'm, I'm, conscious, we've I'm got sorry. Some, conscious we've got some listeners, not least out, uh, outside the UK. So we've talked about the European Research Group, yep. Steve Baker used to head. So that, that's one of them. So basically, the Conservative Party has got all these sort of factional groups, mm. an alphabet soup of them. And the five we're talking about on this issue in relation to Rwanda, you've got the New Conservatives, which are sort of headed up by Miriam Cates and Danny Kruger. You've got the Common Sense Group, headed up by Sir John Hayes, which is sort of fighting the culture wars and the sort of anti-woke issues. You've got the Northern Research Group, I think, with John I, Are you going to ask me to name the no, rest I, of the five I, 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 I wouldn't have agreed to come on if I'd known that it was going to be that kind <laughs> Which one have I left out? No. Um, and then you've got the Conservative Growth Group, headed up by Ronald Jaya Wardner. I think that's the five. Yeah, but, but there, there's an alphabet soup, but they also interlock a lot, and yeah. S- yeah. some people can be in several of these yeah. groups. So that there's a, a kind of constellation of groupsicles around the edge of the Conservative Party, all sort of tugging at its but, hem but in different they, ways. They said that they'd met together in this sort of, they'd looked at the bill in the Star Chamber, they'd met together and they'd agreed collaboratively that they were going to take a common position. And they clearly didn't. I suppose their composition was that they were going to abstain, you know, well, some very of them grumpily. Didn't. Some but... of them voted for the bill. Oh, right. Yes. Yes. yes so, right. Yeah. So, so not even. I watched because actually we had a very early filing day that day. So I, I had to have my copy away by five o'clock and I watched the first two hours of this and I thought this bill <laughs> is fine. Yeah. You do get a sense when people are, are fixing to vote again. And, you know, at the point at which I was sending my copy off, I was, no one had yet, and, I, and indeed, obviously, no one did, no one did. S- stand up and say, I shall, and I shall vote against. One of the mysteries, though, of the Rwanda debate was this whole question of pairing. Now, the, 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 the normal business of MPs sort of pairing up with someone who's going to vote in the opposite direction so that they can both be absent from the chambers, just a routine part of parliamentary life. But on a debate this big... It's something that's a bit less usual. I mean, there were one or two people who clearly were paired. Lisa Nandy had, I think, just had surgery or something, the Labour shadow minister, and she said on Twitter that she was paired with someone. But you also had Graham Stewart, the climate change minister, come scuttling back from COP, the, the meeting in the Gulf that he was attending there, the climate conference. And that attracted quite a lot of attention because that suggested the alarm bells were really clanging in the whip's office that they were getting a minister from 3,000 miles away to rush back to cast a vote. Yes, and I mean, actually, there was a moment, one moment of drama during the debate quite early on was when we saw Peter Bone wander back in, who has basically not been seen since he was found against by a standards but, committee. And somebody had obviously phoned him up and said, get yourself back here. We're well, here. his sanction had expired, hadn't it? Yes. So he but, was, he was uh, he, able to come back, but he's still subject to his recall petition. He is, and yeah. generally he's been keeping a low profile. Yeah. And so his, his presence was taken slightly as a, as a sign that the government was worried I mean, the basic way that pairing works is, is that there is a government whip's office and an opposition whip's office and an MP who, for whatever reason, doesn't want to or can't get to the vote, goes to their whip and says, please, can I have a slip? It's called, can I be, can I be slipped? A slip of paper, I think. And the whips will say, well, we will see what we can do. And they obviously have a, an order of priority. Now... They find someone else to stand they, they, out. Yeah, on. so so they then go across the lobby to the, the other whip's office and they say, we've got three people who can't make it. Do you have three people who can't make it? And we will offset them against each other. This is what's called the usual channels, and it's a sort of it's a way that Parliament works. Sometimes it breaks down during the Brexit years. Again, Joe Swinson, mm. a Liberal Democrat, was on maternity leave, and this is my story actually. She tweeted, "I am not voting," and she said who she was paired with, and I'd just seen him vote. 
And so I phoned her up and I said, oh, I don't think you are paired. <laughs> and she said, well, I am. And, and, and it, there was a, a, row in the chamber, there was a big it? row about it because essentially this is cheating. This is it's, not against it's the, the code of honour that you're supposed to operate by. Yes. And Alistair Carmichael, who was the Lib Dem whip, was absolutely furious about this. But also uh, Andrea Leadsom, I think, was she leader of the House at the time? But yeah. Andrea, Andrea Leadsom, who's very big on maternity rights and early years care was she was from the government side absolutely livid that the government had done this to a woman who was on maternity leave you know in Scotland I mean it's it not not easy for Joe Swinson to sort of just pop down so it, it can go wrong and actually I think I think the result of that is that since then they have been a bit more careful about about it because if it, if it breaks down the danger is that everyone it, it's in it's in the great play this house when they say right pairings off um, and, and havoc ensues. Yes. So I'm not surprised in a sense that Lisa Nandy was paired because you would, you, if you're a whip, your your priority would be people who are in hospital. But you'd also thought that a similar deal might apply to a government minister mm. representing Britain at a really important international conference. What's Graham's do it summons back a bit of performance art? Well, I wonder, if it, I wonder if it was. I mean, I don't know who else the government had on its on its list. I mean, it may be that they had they had somebody else who was in hospital well, as well. They, they brought select committees back. I mean, yeah. the International Development Committee was due to be in the Caribbean, I think. I think the time of year for it. It was either, either the International Development Committee or the Foreign Affairs Committee, but, yeah. you know, they both they both had to cancel trips. And again, you know, you you'd have thought that whilst maybe not everybody could have been paired, there could have been some pairing on Well, yeah, no, because obviously those, 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 those committees have got people on both sides. Yeah. Mm. So again, it comes back to the theatre. Was he building up this idea that this yeah, is much, I, much closer than it I, well, was? A bit of expectations management. Yes. I wonder also, I mean, again, how good is the government whipping operation at the moment? Yeah. You hear different things, and I, I don't particularly have a view on the current lot, but actually, if, if ideally, the government whip knows on the morning of the vote what the vote is going to be. If they have done their job properly... Mm. That's how it works. Because you just ought to know, really, by yeah. then. You know, so, very few people so, have so their are, mind are we Are we seeing the whips pretending to be all-seeing, and this is this is us being terribly cunning and generating a sense of crisis just to dramatise events when actually we knew it was going to be all right? Or is that what they're pretending what happened and they had no idea? I think there's also a thing that if somebody's in the Middle East, it's a bit get them back, because if we realise we need to get them back at 2 o'clock, that's going to be too late. Yeah. You know, I mean, there was a vote that Gordon Brown was it. I can't remember what it was. It must have been ID cards or something in 2005. Gordon Brown literally landed in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem and took off again. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah exactly. And, um, um, yeah, that was that 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 was at that one point his one trip to the Middle East. I don't think he actually got off the runway um, because they needed him back because. It's one thing to say, you know, you can sort of you can you can nip out for dinner, but but be ready to come back if uh, if I need you. It's another thing if you're if you're you know if Several you're thousand miles away. Yeah, then yeah. So it may be that they didn't want to take that risk. We should explain for listeners this is private deals essentially between the whips. This is not something that's formally recorded by the House of Commons officials and doesn't enter the record. So it's not part of the voting records of the House. We know that they were not present to vote. But we don't know that it was because they were paired. No, we don't. And you you have to ring people up and ask them. There are a whole load of procedures in the House that are not written down, but that, you know, that are well managed. And a lot of them have to do with the Whip's office. And are these essentially political political arrangements as opposed to, to formal parliamentary arrangements? Yes. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. And so half the fun of going through a list of who's voted which way at the end of a sort of contentious vote like that one is trying to figure out 
when the people weren't there, whether they were not there because they'd arranged to be away or whether this was a sort of political process and they weren't supporting their own side. I mean, sometimes MPs enjoy a bit of constructive ambiguity about that, the sort of the version of John Major's toothache. Well, I wanted to be there, but sadly I was unable. And I mean, sometimes, I'm sure as with Lisa Nandy, she wants people to know. And actually, it's easier now because there's social media and because there's all this pressure on MPs I think 20 years ago, the shadow, you know, would not have bothered to explain their absence. But but Lisa Nandy wants her voters to know, look, I, I would have been there, but I'm in hospital. I have a good excuse. Other people sometimes are quite happy for no one to quite know. There's also the business of what's called a conscious abstention. There's, And I think there was one in this one, where an MP will vote on both sides. Walk through both lobbies, yeah. So actually they'll appear in both lists. And that's their way of saying, I pitched up and I did my job and I am very deliberately abstaining and I, 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 I'm abstaining at work as opposed to sloping off for a drink. And what do you think was the irritation levels generated by all this? Among MPs you mean? Yeah. <sighs> Particularly conservative ones. The trouble is that they've sort of become obsessed with Rwanda as a solution and I don't see why it is. A, I mean I genuinely just think if people are willing to cross the world's busiest sea lane to get here the prospect that they might they have a very small chance of being put on a plane to Rwanda one day is not that much of a deterrent. But Conservative MPs have sort of convinced themselves that literally, if this passes, so the small boats problem stops. I, I mean, the oddest thing about this is that, that, that in the last couple of weeks, we've learned that, you know, even if you did get small boats to zero, if, you're, if you think that immigration is a major issue, you've got hundreds of thousands of people who are coming to Britain completely legally, and that is government policy. And all these people are coming with visas that the Home Office has given them. If you think that's a problem, you sort of need to go and have a word with the Home Office. And we're now told that what happens next is that they're waiting to see how the bill is amended when it comes up. There are going to be two days of Committee of the Whole House on this in the new year at some point. Six-hour slugs twice. And um, that's the moment they say they want the government to change the bill. What we know now is that on that showing, they don't have the numbers to force an amendment, even if they could find something on which they could vote with the opposition. And that seems extremely unlikely. So at this stage, it's basically if Rishi Sunak wants to keep these guys happy, he can make amendments. But actually, in this showing, couldn't he just ignore them? Well, yes. I mean, so I was, I was then later talking to a, a, a Tory MP who said, well, yes, you know, this was their moment of maximum strength and they did nothing. So their threat is that when the bill comes back for third reading after the committee stage, which is the, the next point at which, as it were, they vote on the whole thing, they could vote against it at that point. And at that point, Labour will be voting, all the opposition parties will be voting against it. So if they were to vote with Labour, they could kill it. And Labour, as it were, would be killing it, because trying to kill it because they think it's a, a terrible idea. Yeah. And they will be trying to kill it. The, 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 the five families will be trying to kill it because they, they think it doesn't go far enough. Yeah. Are they going to get 30 of them to do it? It's I, a very big ask, isn't it? Yeah. And, and what then, because you're killing your Rwanda bill so that you can have nothing, you know. And actually, I mean, one of the interesting moments in the debate where I think, I mean, I slightly hesitate to attribute this to um, Edward Lee, I'm pretty sure, said something along the lines, well, I'm not really sure that this would work. We've got to do something and this is something, so we'll do it. (laughs) Not using those words, but that was, was, and you sort of thought, this is desperate, guys. That does not sound to me like somebody who's going to say, we've got to do something, this something isn't good enough, so we'll do nothing. 
So what you've then got is the prospect that the bill gets through in the form the government likes it. It gets sent to the House of Lords, where all the sort of small L liberal super lawyers in the House of Lords fall upon it and rewrite it in ways the government doesn't like, mm. make sure that there are lots of human rights protections. And they take very big issue with the idea that the government can, by law, declare Rwanda to be safe. I think uh, Edward Garnier, the former mm. uh, Solicitor General, was saying this is equivalent to legislating to declare all dogs to be cats or vice versa. Um, yeah. and so. Yeah, you could see the bill bouncing back from the House of Lords in a few months' time, but maybe the government wants that. Maybe the government actually wants a whacking great row about migration policy. Or they want a whacking great row about the House of Lords. A whacking great row about the House of Lords that they can possibly take to the country in a general election. That's the operating theory, is that the only possible argument for this is that they want to have a fight. I mean, I... If I had to put money on it, I still don't expect a flight to Rwanda to take off. Certainly not one containing any asylum Might be one containing a Home Secretary. Yeah, we might get a new Home Secretary, and they they too will have to go to Rwanda and and hand over 50 million quid for something or for nothing. Um, But even if... Just going... There's the bill, but there's also the treaty, and the treaty has provisions in it for, for bodies, monitoring bodies and so on, to be set up, to be established that are supposed to look at, you know, what happens once we start sending people across. That's going to take time. So the timetable just doesn't quite add up. And if you're the Rwandan government, you can see what's happening here as well as anyone else. I mean, it's not so much that you'll be dragging your feet. It's just... We've got the money. This is is the problem that's probably going to go away in a year. Why don't we just get on with other things? (sighs) Yes, I don't see how it gets through the Lords because they can't use the Parliament Act because... Uh, there isn't time. Because there isn't time. Because they can't say this was in a manifesto, because it wasn't in a manifesto. And because it's also something that the House of Lords cares about. Yeah. So th- this is the worst kind of thing to take the House of Lords. It's anything to do with human rights. You think of all the big, basically all the big rows with the Lords have been Home Secretaries trying to do something. And all of the people, that, you know, think, look in the House of Lords, bishops, lawyers... Former judges, these are people that you do not want to try and smuggle human rights stuff past. And they can all see it. And also they can they can see that there isn't a huge amount of enthusiasm for this in the Commons. And they too have a sense of the way in which the wind is blowing. And, you know, if we just take our time on this, lads, this, this one goes away. So where does this leave the Conservative Party in... in- the House of Commons. I mean, you think back to 2019, they were all conquering. They'd won Labour heart iron seats. The opposition was nowhere. There must be this enormous sense that, frankly, they've blown it. I think that's undeniable. Uh, and there was, partly, there was all of this stuff that Boris Johnson was elected promising to do, which if he had done it, you know, I mean, let's, let's imagine that levelling up whatever it turned out to be had been delivered over the last four years, Labour might be sitting in places like Teesside and sitting there thinking, well, I don't understand how we get how we get this place back. But if, if I were a Labour candidate in any of those red wall seats, which are held by small majorities generally, I'd just be going around saying they were, they were taking a mick. You know, look, they promised you all the stuff. Where is it? Where are your bigger roads? Where's your new leisure centre? Where's your library? Can you see a doctor? Did things get better? Well, it's the traditional election yeah. campaign, isn't it? Are you better off today than you were in 2019, 2010? Words that both Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves are using in on a regular basis yes. in every chance they get. Core campaigning techniques. Yes. <laughs> that was the Commons' adventures over Rwanda. But before that, you were looking at what Rishi Sunak had to say in the COVID inquiry. Mm-hmm. And before him, what Boris Johnson had to say in the COVID inquiry. Now, that's all been taking place kind of off stage from Parliament, but it's going to feed into Parliament eventually. What do you think is going to happen there? So in terms of how MPs feel, 
None of that, I think, is making MPs feel better. I mean, Rishi Sunak definitely did better at the COVID inquiry than Boris Johnson did, in the sense that Boris Johnson was doing all of the things that Boris Johnson does. He was contradicting himself. He was saying things that that seem implausible. The problem with what Rishi Sunak was doing at the COVID inquiry was there was an awful lot of I don't recalls. And in fact, there are various sort of compilation videos now doing the rounds on the internet of things he can't remember. Look, if I were a lawyer, I'm not a lawyer, if I were a lawyer advising you before the COVID inquiry, I would just say, look, just, just you can't recall. You don't recall. Nobody can prove that you, you can remember you, something. You, you penned an absolutely savage sketch which opened with the phrase IQ of 145 and can't remember. Yes, that's a, a, joke, a joke that only people over 50 will get. <laughs> Sadly. <laughs> yeah, it's a good tactic for avoiding indictment, if you see what I mean. But it's not a good political tactic in the, the best defence, in a sense, that the government ministers have got at the COVID inquiry is we were swept along by events and we were, we were doing what the scientists told us and the science kept changing and we were just trying to keep up, which I think has the virtue that that is a, in large part true, certainly in the early days. And actually, I think that you can go a long way with the public when you talk to people about this. People understand that, you know, in, but, March, in March 2020, it was tough. It, you know, no one would have wanted to be making those decisions you know, shall we close this, shall we close it? It was a completely mad time. Maybe it took you a week longer. I know that, you know, the COVID families for justice will feel differently, but I think I think you could make a pretty good case out in the country saying, yeah, we spent a week longer than maybe we should have trying to decide whether we were going to shutter every business and close every school. And that was a big decision. The problem is you start, you get to two things. You get to A, the chaos that sort of follows that and the feeling... It was just a feeling from about sort of the summer of 2020 that the government was all over the shop. And everything we're learning from the COVID inquiry is that, yes, the government was all over the shop. And actually, although all of these WhatsApp messages and everything are all absolutely fascinating, what's really interesting to me in, in my job now, where I'm, I'm not constantly trying to sort of get a behind-the-scenes look, I'm literally, my job is to sit there and look at what is on the record happening in public and write about it and, you know, make jokes about it, frankly, is... The extent to which, yeah, you know, all of my sketches from that point stand up because the way that you could tell the government was in chaos was because every week they said a different thing. And one day Boris Johnson would be saying, of course I won't do that. And the next day he'd be doing it. It was on the record, as it were, the chaos. And, and so are there great sweeping lessons to be learned about how future pandemics should be handled? Or is it basically, if you had a different prime minister, it would probably have been rather more orderly? I'm sure that if you, I mean, it's very hard to imagine that it would have been less orderly with a different prime minister. <sighs> The problem we got with the COVID inquiry is that it's holding public hearings. It's also taking hundreds and thousands of pages of evidence that's just written evidence that the Baroness Hallett is sitting there and reading. And people think that the inquiry is the public evidence. Actually, the inquiry is lots of other things. The inquiry is happening in a series of phases. So a lot of this stuff that we're reading, oh, well, why aren't they doing this? Why aren't they doing that? Well, look, they're doing education. They're doing that in a future phase. Yeah. It's right not all now, happening at once. We're in the government decision-making phase there's a lot about government decision-making. Turn on, tune in, drop out. Rob Hutton, thanks very much for joining us on the pod. Pleasure. Well, there's a certain element of, apart from that, Mrs Lincoln, how did you enjoy the play? But, Ruth, what else caught your eye in, in this week's parliamentary events? 
Well, we had the last PMQs of the year, but it was a pretty uh, pretty dull session. I don't think there's much to say about it because uh, Rishi Sunak uh, survived the COVID inquiry intact and there wasn't really much uh, much significant news that, that came out about it. He didn't recall a lot. Um, and yeah. uh, that was reflected in <laughs> reflected in, the, in PMQs. Yeah, I think Keir Starmer had a certain amount of fun, but I don't think there was anything terminally wounding in, in the exchanges there. And it was just the, the PMQs usual, I think. Yeah. The other thing that did catch my eye was uh, another appearance by Kemi Badenoch before the Women and Equalities Committee, where there was a bit of a standoff between her and some of the committee members over um, poor questioning. It was a pretty bad-tempered discussion. Um, I mean, Kemi Badenoch is pretty terrier-like. She doesn't let go when she's got uh, a bit between her teeth. And there's a dispute about the use of the word epidemic in relation to uh, a discussion about the rise in the number of young people who are part of the trans community. This was taken as an insult by uh, a Labour MP. And there was a sort of, you know, quite a lot of back and forth about, you know, accusations of lying, unparliamentary language. I think you should withdraw that statement. It all got a bit heated and messy. It used to be said of Ken Clark that he'd cross the street to have a fight. And I think uh, Kemi <laughs> Badenoch is, is very much in that tradition of sort of pugilistic conservatism. Yeah. And she's, she's not going to back down in front of that committee. And she's quite enjoying, I think, having some of those fights because I'm sure they win her a lot of credit where she needs to win credit. Yeah, I mean, she's, uh, you know, there's a lot of, of conservative MPs who were who were applauding her for her, her stance. So that was one event on the committee corridor. Another that took my eye was uh, the pre-appointment hearing for the new chair of the BBC, Samir Shah, who was up in front of the Culture, Media and Sport Committee. Now, pre-appointment hearings were introduced in, in 2007. And basically, select committees take evidence from a minister's preferred candidate for particular key appointments. They take place before the appointment is confirmed, but after the actual selection has taken place. So it's only one sort of nominee. It's not as if the committee's got a choice. And they're not confirmation hearings in the sense that the person doesn't not get the job if the committee doesn't no. like them. No. The committee can find out what they think about stuff, but it can't say, no, you shouldn't appoint that person. They can recommend against it, but they yeah. can't block it. Yeah, I mean, recent recent years, well, the same committee, Culture, Media and Sport, I think, said that uh, the, the government's nominee to chair the Charity Commission was a, what, what they describe as an archetypal and unimaginative choice, and the committee didn't feel able to approve his appointment, so they withheld their approval. Similarly, Michael Grade, of course, uh, you know, well-known broadcaster and... Um, Former chairman me- of the BBC. Indeed. Yeah, indeed, media figure. He was lined up to be chairman of Ofcom and the committee thought that he lacked depth when talking about social media and online safety. And again, they didn't feel able to, to support his appointment. But did it go ahead anyway? It went ahead anyway. Yeah. And this is the thing. So sometimes, you know, the committee, if they criticise appointments... Sometimes the candidate themselves will withdraw. I mean, Dame Janet Finch withdrew some years ago as uh, she was recommended to be chair of the, I think it was Office for National Statistics. And sometimes, you know, it can be a fairly excoriating report from the committee uh, and the government just presses ahead, which, of course, famously one of the very early ones that happened was Ed Balls when he, he pressed ahead with, I think it was the uh, the children's commissioner at the sort of dying stages of the mm. Gordon Brown government. Yeah, much to the angst of the select committee chair at the time, Barry Shearman, the Labour veteran who's standing down at the next election. But that was uh, an example really, if the, the kind of almost ritual nature sometimes of these hearings. I mean, there may be a bit of fun to be had questioning the person, but it's has to be a pretty catastrophic implosion for them not to not be appointed after the hearing. Yeah. And I mean, this was an interesting one, of course, because uh, it raised the question about um, Gary Lineker's, the uh, the host of Match of the Day, his social media activity, no, no. Uh, again, in, in recent weeks. 
And, you know, there's also sort of been issues around whether there's been political interference at the BBC. I think the appointment of Samir Shah, I mean, you'll know better than I do, quite an interesting appointment. Well, Samir Shah's not a grand city figure in the tradition of some of the other recent appointments. Uh, Samir Shah's actually a serious broadcaster. When I first came down to work at BBC Westminster, he was the head of the Westminster operation. He's a serious political producer of very long standing, was on Panorama and various other programmes for quite a while. So it'd be very interesting to see what he does when he's in charge of the BBC. But I'm interested in this absolute fetishisation of Gary Lineker. Why on earth it is grown politicians are completely obsessed by what's tweeted by a football commentator? I mean, if I tweeted some of the stuff Gary Lineker tweeted, I would be in trouble. But then I was doing political programmes. I was directly involved as a political correspondent. He isn't. And I, I just do wonder if this is all getting slightly out of proportion because Gary Lineker's a remainer and a, has become a bit of a hate figure in certain sections. He's also, I mean, he's got he's got um, huge political podcasts in his... Pod power. You know, yeah, pod power. And he's got huge social media following. He can reach many more people than most politicians can. And that's why one of the reasons it, it bothers them. But uh, I'm sure he'll continue doing it, whether he's working for the BBC or not, for a start. Also on the committee corridor, incidentally, and just worth marking, a, another duffing up for the permanent secretary, the top official at the Home Office, Matthew Rycroft, at the Home Affairs Select Committee, who still aren't at all happy happy about some of his performances. They were quizzing him about the cost of the Rwanda scheme and it wasn't a happy sight. They raised questions about um, the integrity, the accountability, the objectivity and the transparency of his approach to informing them as committee chairs about about the Rwanda bill costs and the, the, this whole deal and what it, what, it, what it involves. Yes, and it all concluded with the chair of the committee, Dame Diana Johnson, saying that uh, there was not a good relationship between the committee and the department, and if he thought it was, he was delusional. So that was a, a pretty sharp way to end the occasion. And just another thought, um, there's a regular stream at the moment of quite senior MPs announcing their departure from Parliament. It's uh, with an election looming, there's quite a lot of pressure on people to say, will they stay or will they go? Or will they at least attempt to stay? But the latest name to come up in that connection is the former Labour Chief Whip, Nick Brown, who's uh, had the whip withdrawn and has been the subject of an internal Labour investigation for really quite a long time now, well over a year, on allegations that we simply don't know about. And there's a very interesting natural justice question here that his career in Parliament has basically been ended. He's decided to quit Parliament and indeed the Labour Party Mm. over the handling of his case. He'll be leaving at the next election and nobody actually knows what caused it. The nature of the allegations against him have never been made public and uh, you do have to feel that this is a pretty uncomfortable way for a former chief whip to leave Parliament, especially when in the normal run of things former chief whips can expect to be translated to the House of Lords and uh, don the ermine and take a role there, but I Mm. suspect that's not going to happen in this case. We've talked on a previous episode about this whole question of standards and investigation of MPs who are accused of of things. On the one hand, there's the parliamentary system, but there's also the party system. And this is where the problems here arise, that it seems to be a party inquiry. And nothing, as far as I can tell, has leaked out. I mean, you know, you often sort of hear on the jungle drums at Westminster of, you know, um, X is accused of Y. Yeah, and, 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 you know, nothing is being picked up. So, yeah, and he's he's clearly decided, you know, he's been in Parliament for many years, but he's clearly decided he's had enough and, and he's off.
And so we'll, find, we'll have to await for his memoirs. And if Nick Brown does write his memoirs, I imagine they'll be pretty interesting. Indeed. Oh, one thing I um, wanted to uh, to flag, Mark, is we've not covered international legislatures much on the pod so far, but there's some really interesting events in Poland. So, you know, following the recent term general election, there's been a sort of a, res- a resurgence of interest in democracy, particularly amongst young people. But you're starting to see that in the number of people who are watching the parliamentary proceedings of the Polish parliament, the Gem. And, you know, they're getting hundreds 200,000, 200,000 people watching it every day, live proceedings. They've got 4 million views of this week's proceedings on, on Monday on YouTube. It's sort of starting to be called, because the, the gem, they're starting to call it Gemflix. <laughs> um, and what was really striking was the deputy speaker of the of the Polish parliament. Um, now, I apologise to any Polish listeners for my accent here. Krzysztof Bosak, the deputy speaker, he actually answered a question from a viewer on YouTube via YouTube chat whilst he was in the chamber chairing proceedings. Now, that's public engagement for you. Well, that's what you call interactivity. When I was uh, back in the BBC a thousand years ago, one of the things that was very striking about the viewing figures for BBC Parliament was that they ticked up very sharply in the build-up to the Iraq war, subsided a bit but never subsided to their previous levels, and then zoomed skywards when, amongst other things, we two were doing commentary Mm. on the live events of the, the great Brexit controversies. There are moments when attention is drawn to a parliament and sometimes when people start watching it, they find the process interesting enough to keep on watching even when it's not flaming controversy. Now to next week's events in parliament, uh, of which there don't seem to be all that many because there's two sitting days before honourable members and noble lords break for Christmas and it looks like a pretty humdrum agenda for the most part. It is. I mean, certainly in terms of legislative business and, and debates... I mean, one thing to look out for is the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is up in front of the Liaison Committee, which is the, the body of, of chairs of select committees. They're going to be questioning him. They've, they've sort of grouped the questions into uh, global affairs, economic issues, COP28 and uh, energy concerns. Well, the COP28 section should certainly be interesting. But the, these sessions that started with Tony Blair way back in the day, so they've been going for nearly 10 years now, um, these sessions have very seldom really delivered. Mm. There's always the expectation that one day there's going to be a gotcha moment where a sort of beaten prime minister, bruised and battered, sort of sits back in his chair and says, it's a fair cop, society's to blame, I'm going to resign immediately. That's never happened. Most prime ministers, I think, are pretty capable of fighting their corner in the kind of inquisition that they get at the liaison committee. And the liaison committee members themselves say, but stop looking for a gotcha moment. This is mm. about scrutiny. It's not It's not a, intended as a sort of melodrama. Yeah. But there have, of course, been some remarkable occasions. I mean, the, the surreal session when Boris Johnson, on pretty much the last day of his premiership, was answering questions about his policy when the dogs in the street knew that he was going to be out in a matter of hours. That was a very, very strange session. So just occasionally there's something there. And maybe one day there will be a day when a prime minister is absolutely in the eye of a storm and his back's to the wall, to mix my metaphors furiously. And those sessions will be really, really high drama. But it hasn't really happened yet. No, one of the issues is, I think, the structure. Because you've got, you know, there's a lot of select committees, the chairs all want their say, they all want their opportunity. So they don't focus on one particular angle. And once once they've sort of, you know, got, got him on the ropes, it's then okay they're switching to the next person in the in the queue for for answering questions. Yeah. Whereas having just maybe one or two members asking the questions would allow 
for to keep the pressure on him. They have actually managed to sharpen up the sessions quite a bit by deciding a, a, a bit more rigorously yeah, on the quite, subjects. Still to be quite honest, a lot of the masking. I'm still traumatised by the time when Tony Blair was in front of the committee and um, all the each of the select committee members, and this is all select committees at that stage, not a selection of them, got the chance to ask a question, and so he had some rigorous political controversy. And then it was the turn of a Tory MP called David Tradinick, who chaired the catering select committee, <laughs> who was known to be a complete obsessive about homeopathic medicine, and Tony Blair was suddenly fielding questions about homeopathy with that wonderful sort of slightly quizzical corner of the lip curl that he would do on occasions when he thought that the questions were, were actually a bit off-piste. That kind of thing doesn't happen anymore. They're much more rigorous about it these days. But even so, as you say, sometimes the Buggins turn system of questioning means that just when you think you're getting somewhere, it's time for someone else to have their moment. And just very briefly, before we finish, there's the recall petition in Peter Bone's constituency of Wellenborough. The result will be out um, next week. It's a and- general expectation of a by-election to follow in that yeah. seat. Now, that was a, a Tony Blair landslide high watermark gain in 1997, if people remember an MP called Paul Stinchcombe, who became one of the law officers who sat for Wellingborough until Peter Bone won in, I think, 2005. But, of course, there, there's now the potential for an, another recall process because the Conservative MP, Scott Benton, has been given a swinging sentence, by, or at least has had it recommended by the Common Standards Committee. So we could well see another by-election to follow in Blackpool South if, a, again, there's a petition of his uh, constituents and a recall is voted for there. Yeah, so watch this space. Well, that's all from us for this week's episode of Parliament Matters. Please hit the follow or subscribe button in your podcast app to get the next episode as soon as it lands. And help us to make the podcast better by leaving a rating or review on Apple or Spotify and sharing your feedback. Our producer tells us it's important for the algorithm to give the show a boost. And Mark, tell us more about the algorithm. What do I know about algorithms? You know, I write my scripts with a quill pen on vellum and then send it in by carrier pigeon. <laughs> well, before we go, a quick reminder also that you can send us your questions on all things Parliament by visiting hansardsociety.org.uk slash PMUQ. We'll be discussing them in future episodes, including our special Urgent Questions editions dedicated to what you want to know about Parliament. And you can find us across social media at Hansard Society to get more content related to the show and the wider work of the Hansard our society. Parliament Matters is produced by the Hansard Society and supported by the Joseph Roundtree Charitable Trust. For more information, visit hansardsociety.org.uk slash PM or find us on social media at Hansard Society.